It wasn't Texas. Not yet, anyway. It was November. But by God, was it hot. The man and his friend were slashing and hacking their way through tangles of scrub and underbrush in this untamed wilderness. Rivers of sweat seemed to run like creeks down the man's back and down his arms as he brought his blade up over his head and back down again at some vine or bush as he pushed forward. The going was slow, to be sure, and it gave the man a lot of time to think. You see, at that moment, he was between two worlds. In the world he was leaving behind, he was a living legend, revered in his own time for his accomplishments, and loved by all as a living folk hero who loomed large in the national imagination for taming the wilds around him with superhuman abilities, a fair mind, and that trademark grin. But he felt rejected by that world. And he still felt the sting of it all every time he slashed, cracking that trail before him open bit by bit. But that work on the trail was worth it, he thought. Because at the end of it lay a land of opportunity. Unspoiled lands just waited for claim. And their wildness just called out for someone just like him to tame them. He'd left his family behind, but he planned to call for him when he got settled in and staked his claim in that new world that he was so willing to fight for. He doubted he could go back to his old life even if he wanted to. He burned that bridge in Memphis. Why, he'd been madder than a wet hornet. But as he hacked, he might have thought, Lordy, did I really say that? Out loud? To a room full of important people? But then again, maybe not. Uncertainty and self-doubt weren't really in this man's bailiwick. But the man was also happy. He was out of doors again, cutting through rough territory that had been largely unexplored. It was the same kind of work on the same kind of adventure that had brought him that national recognition in the first place. And he was back at it, away from the cultured crowds of Nashville and Washington, and the sun was on his face again. But the mental and physical strain and that daggum heat finally settled on the man, and he stopped for a rest. But almost as soon as he sat down, he got a strange and dire warning. Turn around. Go back home. Peril and death lay before you. And if you believe a letter that revered statesman and folk hero wrote his brother-in-law during that trip, that ominous warning came from a hairy beast standing on two legs at about seven or eight feet tall. It seems most folks believe Bigfoot was born in America around the late 1950s. Now, we have newspaper reporter Andrew Genzoli to thank for that. In 1958, he wrote a tongue-in-cheek feature for the Humboldt Times in California. It was about a crew of loggers working close to Bluff Creek. 
After a, a weekend away from the job site, the loggers came back to find sets of large footprints, three different sizes, around their machines. In a personal column, Genzoli wrote, Maybe we have a cousin of the abominable snowman of the Himalayas here in Humboldt County. And surely the story sold some newspapers, but to history, the most important part of Genzoli's reporting came in what he called the creatures. What the loggers had called the creatures. Bigfoot. Ah, Bigfoot. In its complexity of description, the name is on par with walkie-talkie or woodpecker. It's pretty obvious. Now, Sasquatch sounds older, more believable somehow. That's probably because its creator wasn't a newspaper man, but a Canadian First Nations tribe in the Pacific Northwest. The coastal Salish people there called the creature Sasquets, if I'm pronouncing that right. The Huppa tribe of Northern California called them Oma'a, or Oma for short. But all those names really come down to is Hairy Man, or Wild Man of the Woods. Maybe the first wild man to ever be recorded was the hair-covered Enkidu in the ancient Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh. Then there's the legend of the Wood Woes, those wild hair-covered men that lived in the forest of ancient England. One of the earliest recorded Bigfoot reports in North America goes back to 1811. A Canadian trader named David Thompson said he discovered huge tracks in the Rockies near Jasper, Alberta. They were 14 inches long and 8 inches wide. But the name Bigfoot did more to capture the American public's attention on the creature than the centuries of sightings and folklore ever did. Some things big, hairy, and unknown were out in the woods. Now the boogeyman had a lovable name, a banner, that the public could all gather beneath. And maybe more than anything... Genzoli's stories, and there were several, ignited a fire about Bigfoot in America. It was thanks to those Bigfoot stories that Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin went searching for the creature around Willow Creek, and they captured the still undisputed and best piece of Bigfoot evidence ever, the Patterson-Gimlin film. You know the film, even if you don't know its name. It's brown and grainy with a a dark human-like figure walking away into the woods. And at one point it gives a heart-stopping look back at the camera in mid-stride. And Bigfoot's flame hasn't dimmed here. If anything, Bigfoot is bigger than ever. But these creatures in America didn't start with Genzoli and Bluff Creek or even Willow Creek. Dig around newspaper archives for the terms wild man or hairy man in the United States and you'll find a treasure trove of amazing stories. And these stories ain't Harry and the Hendersons, folks. The stories are of a wild man, a wood devil, terrorizing Union encampments during the Civil War, or of a rash of sightings so terrifying that they sparked maybe the first organized Bigfoot hunt in America. Then there's that strange story of that famous pioneer who failed to heed that ominous warning from that strange creature in the woods of what would become Texas. I'm Toby Sells. Let's load up and head out, back to the days before Bigfoot was a lovable beef jerky salesman. Back to a time when locals searched the woods to root out a terrible devil man, to end his reign of terror, 
not for an entertaining cable show. Let's mount these horses, and you'd best grab a rifle. We're hunting old-timey Bigfoot today on Haint Blues. It was a massive collection, a seeming mountain of autographs and old letters. They'd been lovingly collected, but it was time for them to go. The appraisers arrived days before the estate sale and began their work. They combed through that mountain of old papers, sorting them and authenticating them the best they could. This was 1999 in Hartford, Connecticut. But a found letter from Private James Moore of the Pennsylvania 67th Infantry Regiment soon transported the whole scene back to 1863 on a cold February night near Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Ramsey and myself were charged to guard company accoutrements along the railway. Very cold, still night. The boys started raising a ruckus from the garrison. Some were yelling aloud that a man-beast was on foot. There was rifle fire towards the river, but we continued our duty as the yelling and shots continued. The corporal queried the witnesses from the company. I was told that the devil raided the food stores after climbing the wall. It was covered in thick layers of dark hair, maybe eight foot tall from head to toe. This next story came from a fan writing to a YouTuber called Blue Ridge Bigfoot. In a discovery similar to the letter of Private Moore, a man was helping his grandmother sort through her attic. There they found the diary of his great-great-grandfather, M.W. Cooper. Bivouacked there on the bank of the Hiawassee River near Chattanooga, the other men in camp wanted to hear fiddle tunes. They begged Cooper to play him. But he was a gifted musician, classically trained on the, on the violin, not the fiddle, at Oberlin College. Conscripted to fight in the Union Army, Cooper insisted he take his beloved violin along with him. And in his leisure time, Cooper played, but he wanted to play Bach and Mozart. And the other men in camp wanted to hear what Cooper called garish folk music. The August sun scorches my back and the air is so heavy and wet. The uniform that looks so grand in parades has become a burden far too great for me to bear. Yet he did bear it. Bared it to play his beloved music on his own there on the bank of the Hiawassee. Cooper tracked the river about a half mile away from camp and he, he sat down watching the water slide by and he, he began to play. It was the violin sonata in G minor by Giuseppe Tartini, better known as the Devil's Trill Sonata. No, this is not the Devil's Trill Sonata. I couldn't afford it. As I was playing, a large, dark shape appeared on the bank on the other side of the river, just visible through the brush. I stopped playing for a moment, thinking it was a bear. I questioned myself whether or not a, a bear could be that big. Shortly after the music stopped, the, the beast, whatever it was, 
retreated back into the woods. There was a, a river between us, and it was a clear day. So I began to play again. No sooner did I start than the creature reappeared. This time I could see that it was not a bear, and it walked on two legs like a man. Yet this creature was far larger than any man. But for some reason I was I was not afraid. The creature stood at the bank and, and made a movement in my direction. I did notice an unusual behavior as we locked eyes. The creature seemed to sway from side to side. I would have sworn it was listening to my sonata. When I finished, the monster swiftly disappeared back into the woods. That night, Cooper was awakened by a long and mournful howl that seemed to get longer and louder, and the camp outside was eerily silent. He rolled to his side, and he could see that all the other men around him were awake too. One soldier whispered to us about the legend of a wild man that walked the Hiawassee River. It was twice the size of any man, fearless, and would give chase to anyone on foot or on horse. He described some gruesome scenes and suggested we didn't leave the tent. And no one did. I laid awake for hours, thinking how close I could have been to my own death. How foolish had I become. My beautiful rendition of the Devil's Trill Sonata may have attracted a beast to our camp. As we broke camp the next day, no one mentioned that eerie howl, but I know they heard it too. Private Moore was killed just a few weeks after that strange encounter on the banks of the Hiawassee. In a small skirmish with the Confederates, he was shot in the chest. Well before the Civil War, Southern pioneers recorded numerous sightings of wild men. Traces of some of those encounters can still be found in newspapers from all over the country, dating way back. In 1829, the Milledgeville Statesman, a, a newspaper in Georgia, carried a story about a man and a boy. They both heard Creek Nation tales of an enchanted island deep in the Okefenokee Swamp. There lived mortals of superhuman dimensions and incomparable beauty. That's the way the Native Americans told it. It had been a dry spell that summer of 1829, and the man and the boy knew they could push deep into the swamp and maybe find that mysterious island. The progress of two weeks brought them to a print of a footstep so unearthly in its dimensions, so ominous of power and terrible in form. The print was 18 inches long and 9 inches across. The stride of this beast was over 6 feet. Their curiosity satisfied, the man and the boy made a hasty retreat out of the swamp. And back home, they quickly spread the tale of the man mountain. On the Florida side of the Okefenokee, hunters heard that tale and scoffed. They'd find this island and this man mountain 
what they'd do when they found them, though. Who knows? But they quickly set out into the wet, dense heat of the Okefenokee. Within days, they were onto a set of tracks unlike anything they'd ever seen before. They camped up on a ridge and, and things happened quickly. Two shots rang out as members of the party fired upon a ferocious wild beast charging at them. Wild in its terror and its anger, the beast unleashed a scream that shook the swamp and most certainly laid fear into the hearts of those hunters. The band of men gathered up closely. They shouldered their rifles and leveled them right at the chest of that massive, hairy, heaving beast before them. And folks, it gets a bit rough right here, so if you don't like violence, skip ahead about 20 seconds or so. But those rifles did not scare the animal. It lunged undaunted into the scrum of men, and for it, the beast was shot seven times. For a moment, they, they weren't sure the shots had phased the thing at all. In its vengeful wrath, the beast pulled down five men wringing their heads off their bodies. That's how the story goes. But that wrath didn't last long. That wild, unbelievable monster began to slow, its arms getting heavier with each dangerous swing. Its piercing howl softened to a a low growl. It hit the ground with a thud and wallowed. It gave one last long roar. It rolled and finally stopped breathing. The four surviving hunters edged in toward the body for a closer look. Their hearts were still pounding, but they'd risked a whole lot and traveled a long way. So an unquenchable fascination to see this thing up close was on them. But then, fear was quickly back on them boys. What if this beast wasn't the only one? What if its friends or family heard the commotion and they were on their way? They gathered their gear and headed quickly out of the Okefenokee Swamp. Back home, they said the wild hairy beast was 13 feet tall. Crowley's Ridge is a topographical oddity. It rises 250 to 500 feet above the pancake flat plain of the Arkansas Delta. Just west of Memphis, it stretches 150 miles from Helena, Arkansas, all the way north across the Missouri Boot Hill. It's a bit like the wall in Game of Thrones, but, you know, natural and, and in Arkansas. Crowley's Ridge was no doubt wild and unsettled in the 1830s and 1840s, and that's about the time the strangeness began. And that strangeness would turn to fear. And that fear would turn to desperation, anger, and finally, into action. His track measures 22 inches. His toes are as long as a common man's fingers reported the Baltimore Sun in March 1846, and in height and make, he's double the usual size. 
Reports of a wild man in the area preceded that newspaper story by some years, some as early as 1834. Reports were focused around St. Francis, Green, and Poinsett counties. They're all just a stone's throw from Memphis, really, right across the Mississippi River. It's unclear what was seen or what happened in that area after that story ran in the Baltimore Sun. But something clearly was seen, and something clearly did happen. Because by 1851, the Patriot and State Gazette newspaper of New Hampshire said an expedition was forming to find this wild man. And a posse led by well-respected men of the community reportedly left Memphis on horseback that year in what might have been the first organized Bigfoot hunt in American history. The Arkansas wild man was of gigantic size and covered with hair. And it had been seen by hunters and farmers. Once the wild man had been seen chasing a herd of cattle, it was running away from two men and leaping some 12 to 14 feet at a time. Four years later, the Pittsfield Sun newspaper reported a wild man, seven feet high, is stated to be roaming around the great Mississippi bottom in Arkansas. Numerous travelers and hunters have asserted that they have seen him, but they have not been able to get near enough to give particulars concerning this strange being. That same year, the Wisconsin Patriot newspaper said the Arkansas wild man was seen breaking the ice of a frozen lake. He was covered with hair of a brownish cast, and and he was well-muscled. After that sighting, another expedition left, this time from Louisiana, to try and capture the beast and prove its existence. One man, according to the reports, rode ahead of the posse, hoping to take the creature and maybe some of the glory all on his own. And folks, it gets a bit rough right here, so if you don't like violence, skip ahead 20 seconds or so. The wild man saw the horse and the rider, and he rushed frantically toward him. In an instant, he dragged the hunter to the ground and tore him in a most dreadful manner. He scratched out one of his eyes and and injured the other one so bad that his friends despaired over the recovery of his sight. The creature bit large pieces out of his shoulder and various parts of his body. The hunter's friends and a party of Choctaw hunters set off in pursuit of the animal. They chased it up into the Wachita Mountains, which were then covered in a snow from an unusually brutal winter. Conditions slowed the hunters, and the wild man slipped away from them. This all brings us back to that legendary pioneer hacking his way through the untamed wilds of Texas. Now, if anyone ever really did call him Davy, it's hard to know. At least one historian said that if they did call him that, David Crockett didn't like it. I've always believed David Crockett was a pioneer and a statesman from Tennessee. Davy Crockett was a Disney character. But a Tennessee state office building bears his name. And let's say you're looking for the Tennessee Emergency Communications Board... You'll find it at the Davy Crockett Tower in downtown Nashville. Historians will say that Davy Crockett, the king of the wild frontier, wrestled bears and rode alligators. 
and David Crockett opposed Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act as a U.S. congressman from Tennessee. On that day, he was hacking through Texas scrubland. Crockett was fresh from his 1835 campaign to reclaim his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. He lost, losing to a one-legged man named Adam Huntsman. And after that stinging defeat, Crockett decided he'd leave his family behind in Tennessee and take up with some fellas headed for new fortunes in Texas, or what was then the Mexican state of Tejas. Before he left, though, he famously told his constituents back in Tennessee to kiss his foot. Since you have chosen to elect a man with a timber toe to succeed me, you may all go to hell, and I will go to Texas. Crockett said that at a a party in Memphis on his way to Texas. And if he ever did regret burning that bridge, it didn't show. He'd been talking up Texas independence even during the election. If Jackson's successor Martin Van Buren was elected, Crockett said he would head south and join the fight. And he did. In January 1836, Crockett arrived in Nacogdoches, Texas and signed an oath as a volunteer to the Provisional Government of Texas. Each volunteer was promised around 4,600 acres of land as payment. After he signed that oath, the men were hacking their way towards San Antonio in that dreadful Texas heat. Crockett looked at the sun high in the sky and decided it was a good time for a break. He told the rest to his brother-in-law, Abner Bergen, in a letter. And that letter's so crazy that I'm just going to read it right here in full. William and I were pushing through some thicket, clearing the way, when I sat down to mop my brow. I've sat for a spell watching as William made his good and fine progress. I removed my boots and and sat with my rations, thinking the afternoon a fine time to lunch. As the birds whistled and chirped and I ate my small and meager ration, I tapped my axe upon the opposite end of the felled tree I rested upon. Whether it was the axe's disturbance or possibly the heat of the sun which caused an apparition to slowly form in front of my eyes, I know not. As a Christian man, I swear to you, Abe, that what spirit came upon me was the shape and shade of a large ape-man, the likes we might expect among the more bellicose and hostile Indian tribes in the territories. The shade formed into the most deformed and ugly countenance, covered in wild hair with small and needling eyes, large broken rows of teeth, and it being the height of three foundlings, I spit upon the ground the bread I was eating. The monster then addressed a warning to me. Abner, it told me to return from Texas, to flee this fort, and to abandon this lost cause. When I began to question this, the creature spread upon the wind like the morning steam swirls off of a frog pond. I swear to you, Abner, that whatever meat or sausage disagreed with me that afternoon, I swore off all beef and hog for a whole day or so afterward. Less than six months after he wrote that letter, 
Crockett gave his life defending the Alamo. Bigfoot was my paranormal gateway drug. That drug was delivered in a 1972 docudrama called The Legend of Boggy Creek. I was in the third grade and stayed the night with a friend who lived way out in the sticks. We watched the film and those long, weird shots of the Arkansas creeks and swamps, they freaked me out almost as much as that big old Bigfoot arm reaching through the window to get at poor Bobby sitting on the toilet. Then, my friend told me he wanted to show me something outside. And, like every third grader everywhere, I listened and I followed him into the pitch black darkness, surrounded only by the woods and whatever lurked there. When I got outside, my friend rushed quickly back inside and slammed the door, leaving me alone with my brand new fear of Bigfoot and Hey Travis Crabtree ringing in my ears. I was out there for maybe five minutes, but it felt like hours. Just me and that eerie calm and my imagination running wild. That imagination has fueled a lifetime love of the paranormal for me. That love is why I wanted to start this show in the first place. And while I can plow through shows and books and magazines or podcasts or any media at all that deals with the paranormal, I always go back to Boggy Creek. The Falk Monster is creepy, to be sure, but what still gets me about the film is the simple southernness of the thing. Bigfoot tales hit home through the authentic twangs and drawls of the crab trees, the fords, the whites, and all the rest. And this put Bigfoot close to home for me as a kid. I didn't know a Bigfoot lived around my parts. Turns out that Bigfoot wasn't just local to the Pacific Northwest, and, and that thrilled me. And it scared me, too. It still does. And I've never come out of that Bigfoot rabbit hole. For proof, I point to the Memphis Bigfoot Festival, which I started two years ago. And I cordially invite you to come this year in late October. Alright, my name's Toby Sells. Thank y'all for loading up and heading out with me today. Holler back at me here soon for more Haint Blues. Blues.